song you're listening to now is the first known recording by King of Jazz, Freddie Keppard. Last week on the I Might Be Wrong Accidentally About Jazz podcast, I told you about a guy named Freddie Keppard, who in the late teens, early 20s, was known as the King of Jazz. These days I'm known as the King of Jazz, but back then he was the King of Jazz, and someone came to him in 1916 and said, hey, would you like to make a record? And he said, screw you! Except they probably didn't say, screw you, back then. He probably said, like, go eat an apple! Which would be like the 1916 version of screw you. He thought people would hear the record, steal his music. He didn't want to do it. Therefore, the first jazz recording happened to be by a couple of white guys called the original Dixieland Jazz Band. Oh, whoops. So Freddie Keppard missed out. This is the first known recording by Freddie Keppard. I say known because people think he was maybe on a few recordings before that. They don't really know. They think maybe he was playing with a group called the Creole Jazz Band. That's Jazz, J-A-S-S, because they hadn't settled on a spelling for jazz yet. So that's Jazz as in Hugh Jazz of The Simpsons. They don't really know, but they do know that this is Freddie Keppard playing Stockyard Strut with a group called Freddie Keppard's Jazz Cardinals. So he got into the recording business a little bit late. Awfully unlucky for Freddie. I have to say I went to some of the Jazz Cardinals recordings. One of them, Salty Dog, has eight views on YouTube. That's not a great number. Hopefully this podcast will ignite a little bit of a Freddie Keppard revival. Though I would not hold your breath, Freddie. Hello, and welcome to the I Might Be Wrong Politics and Comedy and I Guess Jazz History Podcast. I'm Jeff Maurer. This is the audio version of content that can be found on my Substack, which is imightbewrong.substack.com. Please go there. Please subscribe. It is presently completely free. How do I make money? Volume. Simple answer, volume. Now, the simple answer is I don't make money yet. Today's episode is called... Ukraine is where worldviews collide. I am riveted by what's happening in the Ukraine. I want so badly for Ukraine to pull through. I am so riveted to this, I have taken the extreme measure of turning on CNN. I am watching CNN these days. Any cable news, just to get updates, it's come to that. And it's so stunning to me. What's happening is so 20th century or even before that, it seems. And that's why I wanted to write about how there seems to be an old way of viewing how the world works and what you might call a modern way of viewing how the world works, or at least should work. And Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a reminder that not everyone sees things the modern way. So, The episode is called Ukraine is Where Worldviews Collide, subheading, unluckily for them. Strangely, one professor I developed an actual kind of personal relationship with during grad school was, of all people, John Mearsheimer. And I say strangely and of all people because John Mearsheimer and I agree on little to nothing. Mearsheimer is 
synonymous with the realist school of foreign policy. I, at the time, was a 24-year-old dope with enough idealism to make the snuggle bear look like a hardened cynic. Even so, Mearsheimer and I would have long talks during office hours. He was very nice to me. I would come in, we would talk, we would debate. My memory of those conversations is that I would make these big, full-throated arguments about the power of ideas and about how the post-Cold War world is a new era and things we learned from Otto von Bismarck, yeah, they're interesting, but they're not really relevant in our modern, enlightened age. And Mearsheimer would listen politely and then respond with basically the intellectual version of one of my favorite quotes from the show, Peep Show, which is, that's really nice, it's just... Not true, is it? The point is, I like the guy. And I was glad to hear him pop up on Andrew Sullivan's podcast recently, explaining how the West had failed to understand how Vladimir Putin sees the world. I recommend listening to that. I actually recommend listening to Andrew Sullivan talking to John Mearsheimer, and then Andrew Sullivan talking to Ann Applebaum. Those are sort of companion piece podcasts, they have very different views of how the world works, and I think if you listen to those two, the takeaway I got was certainly people see NATO expansion very differently, which I think is an accurate statement to say the least. At any rate, this moment in foreign policy, as horrible as it is, and it is horrible, it is something of a validation for the realist school of foreign policy thought. The end of the Cold War, that was a rough time for the realists. The end of the Cold War led to big pronouncements about how history had hit an inflection point. Liberal democracy had decisively won. This sentiment was most famously captured in the book The End of History and the Last Man by Francis Fukuyama. That was a tough moment for realists. <laughs> there was a lot of liberal crowing. It was probably obnoxious. It was probably a bit like living with a Patriots fan during the Tom Brady era. Ooh. Of course, suddenly... Russia has invaded another country, and everything has changed. Realists are, perhaps understandably, engaging in a little bit of I told you sewing. After 30 years of lollipops and rainbows and Tom Friedman books, hippie wankery, from their point of view. Nonetheless, today's episode picks one more friendly argument with John Mearsheimer. I agree that the realist school of thought, which Mearsheimer typifies, it does explain Vladimir Putin's actions extremely well. And in the 18 years since I finished grad school, I have conceded a Warsaw Pact-sized amount of territory to Mearsheimer's worldview. I have a lot more sympathy for realism than I used to. If you want to hear my thoughts about realism in more length, you can read an article called Afghanistan Has Killed My Idealism for About the Twelfth Time, which is on my substack. I might be wrong. I'm more sympathetic to realism than I used to be, but I don't think that realism's victory is total. Though Russian tanks are currently rolling through Ukrainian streets in a display of power politics that would make Clemens von Metternich completely erect, I do think that's only part of the story. Putin shows that some leaders still do see the world in terms of zero-sum conflict, but I don't think it follows that that will always be true. I think a good place to start here would be a brief recap of the relevant theories in a way that is maximally insulting to both 
theories. So here we go. Liberalism believes that international relations are perpetually on the brink of some kind of peace and love hippie hootenanny. Think the dawning of Aquarius scene from Hare. Liberals take note of the fact that established democracies don't really go to war with each other. Of course, they ignore the fact that established democracies mostly only exist in one relatively small part of the world, which, hey, happens to also be the part of the world where most of the people who write about liberalism live. What an amazing coincidence. Liberals place a great deal of value in international institutions like the United Nations, despite the fact that as a peacekeeping institution, the UN has a record for feckless indifference that would impress even the laziest of substitute teachers. Liberals think the UN building should not be converted into condos, which I personally see as a form of nimbyism. Footnote, I'm being a little glib here for effect. I do think the UN does some good things, public health especially, but it is true, as a peacekeeping entity, a guarantor of world peace, they have not succeeded at that. Anyway, liberals believe that cooperation and peace are possible. They see the fact that the species Homo sapiens is currently on a, a little bit of a 200,000-year streak of uninterrupted warfare, as that's just kind of bad luck. Surely the 200,001st year will be a little better. All we have to do is foster the right normative values, and then we need to proliferate those values through international institutions or maybe through a really influential celebrity benefit song like We Are the World or Sending Our Love Down the Well from The Simpsons. We just need to do that, and then peace will be at hand. That is my maximally insulting thumbnail sketch of the liberal school of foreign policy thought. Realists, of course, are having none of that shit. Realists think that the liberal dream of peace is like a three-year-old's dream of growing up to be a unicorn. Good fucking luck with that. Realists could not care less how a country is governed. You're a liberal democracy? Good for you. Your president's a nice guy? Who cares? Good father? Fuck you. Go home, play with your kids. That is a Glengarry Glen Ross reference. To realists, countries are countries. It does not really matter which one you're talking about. Russia is France, is Malaysia, is Paraguay. Pretending that countries are fundamentally different makes about as much sense as assigning personality traits to a pile of rocks. To realists, the only thing that matters is the international system. But realists also note that there is no international system. We are in a state of anarchy. There is no order, no safety, just self-interested actors clawing each other's eyes out in a desperate battle for relative advantage. It's a lot like boarding a train in Italy. At any rate, with that being true, the best thing a country can do to survive is to accrue power. Get as much power as you can. That's the realist view. This is why, historically, realists have been obsessed with things like steel production. Steel equals artillery, equals power, equals no Germans marching down the streets of your capital. Peace, realists think, can only be achieved temporarily and only under special conditions, which is how they explain the fact that the only places with Germans marching down the streets these days are popular vacation spots in the Mediterranean. Though they do come out in force in those places, don't they? And there is my insulting recap of realism. So, you can probably see how Vladimir Putin's actions buttress the realist worldview a lot more than the liberal worldview. I don't think 
that most people in the 90s realized how threatening NATO expansion might look from the point of view of someone like Vladimir Putin. To an American, of course, the fact that we're not going to invade Russia, that's pretty fucking obvious. I mean, honestly, can you imagine a universe in which the United States, with the help of NATO powers like Iceland and Estonia, the United States invades and annexes Russia? What? And then, (laughs) I guess Americans colonize Russia by moving to Siberia, I guess. Now, look, I'm a New Yorker. I pay bonkers rent for a modest two-bedroom apartment, so I maybe would move to Siberia, even if my new house spent most of the year under 10 feet of snow and reindeer shit. I would still have a washer-dryer. Worth it to me. But most Americans are not going to go for that. The idea that we are a real threat to Russia seems pretty silly. But the fact that this scenario is inconceivable to most Americans, in a way, doesn't really matter. What matters is what Vladimir Putin thinks. And Putin, (laughs) it should be noted, is a really weird guy. (laughs) I think everyone knows he's a bad guy. I don't think everyone necessarily knows how weird of a guy he is. Consider, he announced the occupation of eastern Ukraine in a state-televised, two-hour-long national security meeting. What sick fuck schedules a two-hour meeting to begin with? But a two-hour-long National Security Council meeting, followed by a rambling one-hour speech, so three hours total now, that culminated in recognizing the breakaway quote-unquote republics. The whole thing was absolutely batshit. In any democracy... (laughs) He would have at least paid a price for preempting Celebrity Big Brother. But in Russia, Vladimir Putin is the guy who makes decisions. So his worldview, no matter what it is, is the one that we have to understand. And Putin is very obviously in an Otto von Bismarck type. It is all about relative power mindset. Here are some quotes from his speech. And I'm not going to give him an accent because we're not going to devolve into jingoism here. No, actually, I am going to give him an accent, but I'm going to give him upper Midwest. So here we go. About NATO expansion, Putin says, why was it necessary to make an enemy out of us, eh? I'll tell you why. They didn't want such a large, independent country as Russia, don't you know? I may have improved that, don't you know? About the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO, he says, we clearly understand that in such a scenario, the degree of military threat to Russia, will rise cardinally by multiple times, right? Final quote from Putin. The purpose is single, to keep Russia behind, to prevent it from developing. And they'll do it before, even without, any formal pretext. They'll do it just because we exist, eh? End quote. And if you think that accent is cartoonish and offensive, I have relatives in Minot, North Dakota. And they actually sound like that. I am culturally allowed to do that stupid, stupid accent. Anyway, Putin sees Russia as besieged. I know a lot of what he says is bullshit, but I think it's accurate to say he sees Russia as besieged. He cannot comprehend that American troops in Estonia might be there to protect Estonia. All he sees are American tanks 500 miles from Moscow. And to Putin, the idea of Ukraine... Joining NATO presents an intolerable threat. Now, let me emphasize, I think this view is completely batshit. (laughs) 
I am absolutely not joining those on the dinosaur left, like Jeremy Corbyn, or the wacko right, like Tucker Carlson, who seem to be saying, I don't know, Putin's got some good points. <laughs> That's the line if you're in the Tulsi Gabbard, very odd part of the American dialogue. I don't know, it's NATO's fault. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that though I think Putin's view of the security situation in Europe is completely wrong, it is nonetheless his view, and his view is the one we are interested in here. Unfortunately, the world of peace and shared values that many liberals felt was inevitable 30 years ago, that has not arrived. Instead, we are forced to deal with a guy in Vladimir Putin who would like to return to the 80s about as much as David Lee Roth would like to return to the 80s. We were wrong to think that a world without power politics was at hand or in any way inevitable. And I think this points to a common shortcoming among liberals. We see the world as we want it to be, not as it is. We craft theories based on hopeful visions of the world because we want to believe that progress is about to happen. Unfortunately, sometimes it just isn't. Not enough liberals in 1945 said, hey, uh, nice idea, but I don't think the UN Security Council is going to work. I mean, we just handed a veto to a guy who is literally Joseph Stalin. Probably not enough liberals in the 90s said, okay, Russia has changed their flag so that it looks a bit like Luxembourg's, and that's awesome, but let's understand that not everyone in Russia agrees that the Cold War is over. Saying that, that is real turd-in-the-punch-bowl stuff. You don't really want to say it. Of course, those things are true. But if liberals are optimists, I would argue that realists are pessimists. Just because things have always been one way doesn't mean that they'll always be that way. I am, I should recognize, ceding an enormous amount of ground to the realists here. I'm basically saying, oh, you may have won this round. And you may have won the round before it. And you may have won the 10 million rounds before that. But one day, you might not win a round. Still, the realist belief that the international system is what it is, and it will always be that way, and it will never change, that is the sticking point for me. I think it can change, and I think, in fact, it has changed in a few cases. Consider the fact that... The years without a horrifically bloody war sign on the outside of Western Europe just hit 77 years this year. That is remarkable. And this is something I used to talk about with John Mearsheimer, because this is a problem for realists, the peace in Western Europe. That's weird. There used to be nothing Western Europe loved more than tossing untold numbers of soldiers and civilians into the great Western European meat grinder in the interest of, say, moving the border of the German-slash-Danish province of Schleswig-Holstein 10 centimeters. That era seems to be in the past. You know what Schleswig-Holstein is known for these days? A pretty nice beach. There is a pretty nice beach there. It is frequented by Germans and Danes alike. And you know what? You can even get in the water if you are comfortable with your balls freezing off and floating away towards Scotland. But that's Europe today. Peaceful, if frankly too cold. Realists, and John Mearsheimer specifically, think that Western Europe's peaceful turn 
is the result of a Pax Americana that's persisted despite the end of the Cold War, or maybe I should say what we thought was the end of the Cold War. Anyway, that's their explanation for why Western Europe is peaceful today. Mearsheimer believes that if the U.S. dissolved NATO and skipped town, if we said, hey, we're going out for cigarettes and just never came back, Western Europe would be back at each other's throats. And hey, maybe he's right. We can't know (laughs) unless and until that happens. Honestly, I think it'd be kind of exciting if he was right. I would be interested to wake up to a headline reading, Whoa, Belgium invades Liechtenstein. (laughs) I would not see that coming. I am honestly tired of the same old media narratives. I would like to see jackbooted Belgian thugs rolling through the storybook streets of Liechtenstein in tanks made of chocolate. That would be interesting. That would be an intriguing change of pace. And of course, I am able to tell stupid jokes about tanks made of chocolate because I think that idea is ridiculous. I do not think Belgium is going to invade Liechtenstein. Let me, that's a prediction. I'm going on the record there. I don't think Belgium's going to invade Liechtenstein. I think normative values matter. This is one of my beliefs in international politics. And this is also one of my beliefs in domestic politics. If you listen to this podcast, you know that I think there's kind of a quasi-religious fervor rising on the left. I think that a powerful belief system is presently causing people to act in some awfully strange ways. Now, I can't write about the power of beliefs in the domestic sphere and then do an about-face and pretend that they don't exist in the international sphere. I do think that normative values exist. I think they can drive. I think they do drive. I think they have driven decisions in international relations, and I think that Western Europe's turn towards peace is largely, not entirely, but largely the result of the fact that after (laughs) exploring the bloody alternative for a couple millennia, Western Europe has decided that between themselves, war is just not done, old boy. I think that to deny these considerations is basically to deny the power of belief systems, and belief systems have been behind some of the most extreme actions in human history. You don't build the pyramids, after all, without an awfully powerful belief system. And perhaps an alien or two. Which is a joke. Don't I don't actually think the aliens built the pyramids. Anyway, this is not a podcast about jazz history or who built the pyramids. This is a podcast about Ukraine. Ukraine is now the physical location of the ideological split between those who see the world exclusively in terms of power and influence and those who don't. The West mostly believes that security between countries can be achieved, not will be achieved, but can be achieved through cooperation. Putin does not see the world that way. Is obviously still all about power and spheres of influence to him. Eastern Europe is literally in the middle of those two views. The West, it has to be said, was slow to realize that the assumed triumph of our belief system in the late 80s, early 90s, that actually did not happen. And if we had been seeing the world a little more clearly, we may have played our cards very differently. I continue to believe that Russia's present does not have to be its future. We have seen Russians who oppose the war taking to the streets in large numbers in a display of balls that is truly commendable. My hat is off to you, Russian protesters. 
Putin's view does not always have to be Russia's view. And I think the fact that I can sit here and <laughs> crack lighthearted jokes about Germany, that just goes to show how much things can change. Those jokes about Germans would not have gone well several decades ago. One day, Russia might have a less paranoid, less interested in power politics, more peaceful leader. I do hope they get there soon, but unfortunately, I think it's completely clear that day is not today. And that's the episode. You know, I'll tell you, sometimes you set out to make a political comedy podcast and you accidentally make a podcast about jazz history and who built the pyramids and Clemens von Metternich's penis. It happens. <laughs> it happens. Sometimes you just kind of lose the thread and you don't really, you can't plan everything. But hey, penicillin was invented by accident. So this is that, I guess. It's clearly time to end the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. As always, everything I write can be found at imightbewrong.substack.com. I will be back next week with another episode, which will probably be about Ukraine, because that will still be happening. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Russian warship, go fuck yourself, and bye for now. <laughs>